What is it that captivates your life? What is it that receives the most attention in your life? What is it that causes you the greatest joy in your life? And can these things, whatever your answers may be, can these things sustain you when your world collapses? If today you lost everything that is tangible to you, your family, your possessions, your health, your freedom, and so on, would you have lost the most important thing? A while back, I, I felt some things slipping away from my life. The, the pain, the sleeplessness, the concern that billowed up in my heart was robbing me of my peace, my joy, my hope, my love. I became preoccupied with those things, and I became really preoccupied with me. Then I realized after a wonderful time in prayer and a significant time of meditation upon God, his word, his character, that my heart had actually shifted from the greatest glory, Christ, to temporal glories, the things that he has created. See, often we approach this world, I think, too casually. We don't understand or grasp the insidiousness of, of sin and evil. By insidious, I mean the treachery, the craftiness, the waiting in ambush that sin and evil seeks to bring upon our life. You see, evil takes no vacation. Sin, we are told, is crouching at the door. And it's crouching at the door of our hearts and our lives. Did I say sin? Evil, I meant. Evil is crouching at the door of our hearts and lives for a slight opening so that it may find a headway into our hearts to distract, to discourage, and to destroy. The battle with evil is both subjective, that is, arising within us, and objective, that is, resulting from external assaults upon or against us by something or someone else. There is an evil within me. It's called the flesh. It is impersonal in that it is a principle of sin that resides in my unredeemed body. It is not a demon. It is not my old nature. It is not some personal being of some sort working in me. Paul says it this way in Romans 7, 5. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions were aroused by the law. It's the sinful passions that make up the flesh. And if we give it its lead, this week we rode a horse. I'm surprised I'm not like this, you know, up here. But we rode a horse. If you give the horse its lead, it'll, it'll do whatever it wants to do. It, it'll take, its, take you into places you shouldn't go. But if you give the flesh its lead, it will entice, it will mislead, it will cause compromise, it will corrupt, and it will destroy all by itself. You don't have to blame it on the devil. You don't have to blame it on anything else. It's just the flesh. That is why the scriptures make it really clear that we are put to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We're to kill it off. And that's no easy task, since the flesh is like a fire-breathing dragon that when you cut off its head, it grows another one and comes back after you. It is relentless in its pursuits to corrupt us and to lead us away from the Lord. And yet, not only do we have that battle, there's another grievous evil that attacks from without. That, the evil that is expressed really in our world, the worldview of our age or the philosophy of life that persons then hold and bring to bear against us and on us. And some 
this, this evil attack is very personal. It, it includes dev, the devil and demons. It includes evil people. And some just people who are just instruments of evil. The devil uses, you see, the world system as expressed through people to assault our flesh and to entice us to succumb to evil things. His approach is calculated, it is subtle, and it's deadly. And we must learn to combat it. But how? In order to combat this kind of evil, we must first of all recognize that this battle does truly exist from within the church and from without. We must realize the treachery or the insidious nature of evil. We must learn to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We must learn to find our source of pleasure in Him. Otherwise, we will find it in inappropriate ways and in other places. Places that will often lead to our destruction. We need to take up arms to destroy anything that turns us from holiness or from delight in Jesus Christ. It's my persuasion these days that the church doesn't really believe in evil. It believes in wrong. It believes in bad. It believes in corruption. But it doesn't believe in evil. Christians are afraid to call something evil. We have all sorts of ways to dance around the term. But if the truth came to bear on much of what occurs today, we would have to label it evil. Our battle in this world is against evil and against its many faces. Psalm 34:14 says, "Depart from evil and do good." But you can't depart from evil if you don't know what evil is. We won't combat it if we don't see it. How do we come to recognize what is evil? We have to first recognize what is good. God is good. And when we come to know Him, when we find in Him His goodness, His purity, His beauty, His perfection, then whatever falls short of that, we will be able to discern to a great degree what is good and what is evil. In addition we will have the means to combat evil when we see the glory and the power of of the God we love and serve. You see, Paul, recognizing evil in the world, is not cowering because of it, but finding something far greater to sustain him and see him through. If you remember, just by way of review, if you remember... The Apostle Paul is in prison. In our text, we'll be in 2 Timothy in a minute. But our Apostle Paul is in a dark, a damp, a smelly, a dingy, a dismal, underground Roman prison with one little hole for light and one little hole for air. He's in this prison waiting his execution. He has been arraigned. He's been tried. He's been found guilty, though innocent, and has been sentenced to death. He realizes that the time of his departure is at hand. He will no longer be on this earth. He is cold. He's lonely. He's spiritually thirsty. He's suffering immensely. And yet, one thing remains clear. He's focused on ministry. He's focused on ministry. Evil is out to get Paul. It's out to cause him to change his focus 
so that he no longer sees what he needs to be doing, though in prison. He now will take on the attitude of self-pity or self-focus or self-concern. And he becomes, the devil would like him to be overwhelmed and overcome with that. However, Paul, he's watchful. He's ready. He's, he's bent on combating evil to the very end. He wants to be sure that when he departs this world, having finished his course well, that another man is in place to carry on so that the gospel is not forgotten, it's not contaminated, and it's not lost to the future generations. His man is Timothy. But Timothy has his own personal obstacles to overcome. He views himself too young. He he is physically ill a lot of the time. He is fearful of, of fulfilling his ministry. And thus Paul in his final words to this man wants to prepare him, his son in the faith, by giving him one final lesson. And it's really interesting to me how Paul unfolds that lesson. It's sort of camouflaged behind a series of difficulties that Paul has been facing. The lesson is for the purpose of strengthening Timothy in such a way that he will continue to preach the gospel as well as finish his ministry after Paul is martyred. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 to 22. I really want to start with verse 6, just to lay the context a little bit, and then we'll be continuing our study in 9 to 22. But follow along as I read. Paul writing, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful for, to me for service. But Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Would you join me in prayer? Father, this morning we would just ask for your grace to teach us that we might be a people who finish this life well, like Paul. And may it be that whatever obstacles we face in our own heart and lives that would keep us from rising to our ministry and rising to our warfare, may you encourage us to stand up, bear the armor, and fight the good fight against all evil. Teach us, Father, this morning, for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
We started last week to investigate what Paul said to Timothy as he prepares, as Paul prepares to die. And we broke down our passage into the plea for the present, the pain from the past, the praise for the future, and the pronounced benediction. We started looking at the plea for the present. And we started looking at the, the cry of longing in Paul's heart for Timothy. He says in verse 9, as well as in verse 21, make every effort. In verse 9, to come to me soon. In verse 21, to come before winter. But make every effort. Do all you can. Come quickly before winter. It's an urgent plea. Paul feels cut off. He's terribly abandoned, lonely, exiled from the churches that he has founded and from the people he knows and loves. But why does he make this plea? He longs for his son. One more time to see him before he dies. There's an ache, a deep longing for Timothy to come. And we wish we knew if he made it. But we don't. We can only hope. But what is it that stirred this longing in Paul? Well, we started looking at the cause for the longing for Timothy. The cause for this deep longing of Paul for his son in the face was primarily the result of his interactions with people while he's in prison. We, we see in these verses the situation with Paul's friends and his foes. How have people treated Paul during the worst period of his life? Well, Demas just deserted him for the world. Crescens, Crescens and Titus left Paul for ministry elsewhere, it seems. Luke is alone with him. Mark, he requests to come so that he might be by his side. He's useful. Tychicus is taking this letter to Timothy. will replace Timothy in Ephesus so that Timothy is free to come. Carpus, Timothy is told to go to Carpus and pick up Paul's cloak and his scrolls and bring them to Paul. Because Paul sees the winter coming, it will be cold. He wants the scrolls for reading and for writing. He also faced Alexander, who did him much evil, who opposed his word. And Paul calls the man evil. It doesn't say he's just a bad guy. He's evil. We could see other relational aspects if we drop down to verse 19. This is where we just left off. In verse 19, he speaks of Prisca and Aquila. Notice, greet Prisca and Aquila. He says, these two were very special to Paul. He first met them in Corinth on his second missionary journey because they had fled from Italy when the emperor Claudius ordered all Jews expelled from Rome. Because they were fellow tent makers, Paul stayed in their home while reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade both Jews and Gentiles to faith in Christ. When Paul and his party left Corinth, he took them with him to Ephesus and left them there to minister. While there, they met a man by the name of Apollos, who was a mighty man in the scriptures, we are told, but he had a, an insufficient understanding of the gospel. So Prisca and Aquila came alongside him and explained more to him, more accurately, the word of God. He, like many others, Paul considers in Acts Roman, in Romans 13.3 to be his fellow workers in Christ. And Paul wants Timothy to greet them. But not only them, notice he also mentions Onesphorus. He says, greet Prisca and Aquila. And Prisca's other name is Priscilla, in case you wondered. And the household of Onesphorus. Now, who is Onesphorus? Well, we know in 2 Timothy 1.16 that it says this, The Lord grant mercy on the house of Onesphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. What a man. This man was not afraid to be identified with Paul. In fact, he sought and often refreshed Paul. It appears that his whole household knew the Lord. And in those days, the household could be extended to servants, to people who visited, friends, children. It appears that whoever seemed to be a part of his home came to Christ. Paul must have missed this man because this man refreshed him. And if there's anything Paul longs for now, it would be refreshment in the faith. 
Paul wants Timothy to greet him in his household. And in fact, really what he's saying, Timothy, tell him goodbye for me. And beyond this, Paul thinks of another man. He thinks of Erastus. We're told in verse 20 that Erastus remained at Corinth. He was probably the city treasurer in Corinth who had earlier sent greetings through Paul to the church at Rome. Now Paul is sending greetings to him. In Romans 16:23, it says, Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. So he appears to be the city treasurer in this area. Trophimus is another one that he refers to. Trophimus, he said, I left sick at Miletus. He was a traveling companion of Paul in Acts 20, verse 4. He accompanied uh, Paul and Sopater and Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus is listed in that, these traveling companions of Paul. Acts 21, 29 seems to say the same thing. Trophimus was a man on Paul's mind. He left him sick. And he was concerned. It's very interesting. Paul didn't heal him. Why not? He was an apostle. Can't you just heal him? He didn't do that. Because you see, apostolic gifts were of that nature were passing off the scene. Paul is near death. The apostles are nearly gone, are, are going away. And consequently, those sign gifts are going away as well. Paul didn't heal him. Didn't heal Timothy either. And Paul must have been sad that he left him sick, wished that he was with him. He would have come, probably, if he could have. And then in verse 21, we see other names. Ubalus greets you, and Pudens, and Linus, and Claudia, and all the brethren. Each of these send Timothy greetings. The initial three have Latin names, three men, indicating they're probably from Italy, most likely members of the church at Rome. Claudia, we know nothing of her, yet probably also associated somehow with the church at Rome. And so in addition to them, Paul sends greetings from the brethren there. Paul, Paul says, look, all the brethren, plus these people at Rome, just say greetings. What's, what's nice about that is that there are a few believers near him from the church at Rome. But Paul is still very lonely. And why? Well, well, Paul does have these few friends with him, like those mentioned above, Luke and his loyal companion. Apart from Luke, these were probably not very close friends yet. But once he knew, but they were just new friends. You know, it takes time, doesn't it, to develop close friends. And consequently, what he's longing for is his old friends the ones that he was involved and engaged in missions work with and out busy doing things. He missed those friends and he wanted them by his side. But the interesting thing is Paul, while in prison, is just thinking about people. People whom he loves. That's why he's listed them name by name. People who are not with him. Some who have, who have intentionally caused him sorrow and grief but he wants his friends by him. When you're suffering, if you have a really good friend, what do you want? Don't you want him with you? Someone who just his heart pulses like your heart and understands. You just want them by your side. Well, that's what Paul wants. He had a great deal of time to think of them while in prison and to pray for them. And he does. And his longing for them would naturally increase as well as his pain because they're not around would increase. He, they're so far away. They're so absent. You know, this, this dear man over here, Mishi, is just a dear friend to me. And when he goes home, it'll be hard. You know, we just have a great time together, though there's language and different things and culture. And, you know, and when, you, when you're in trouble, you kind of like friends like that around you. And I can understand how Paul must be longing for his friends to come. And there's nothing wrong 
with Paul longing. There's nothing wrong with the pain Paul feels. There's nothing wrong with that. I wish Christians could really share these things with each other without Christians trying to solve them, dismiss them, or diminish them. You know, the the phrase that's been coming up a lot, it seems, around me, and I use it myself, and I almost kick myself when I do, is I keep hearing this phrase, it is what it is. Yeah, it is. But you know what? It hurts. And to say that to me doesn't comfort me at all. It is what it is. I understand that. Believe me. What I need is a friend. And when you're in trouble and you're lonely and you're empty, that's what you need. And that's what Paul wanted. And that's what his heart ached for. However, in in the midst of this intense loneliness, he thinks more of his suffering. (laughs) It's interesting. He talks about the pain from the past. We all see the problem, the prayer, the power, the proclamation, provision. Those five things as we look at this. The pain from the past. What was the problem that he faced when it came to the pain from the past? He says in verse 16, At my first defense, no one supported me. All deserted me. Amazing. That just is staggering to me. This man who has such an extensive ministry who sacrificed of himself over and over again for the churches, beaten, shipwrecked, suffering over and over, comes to this final hour and there's no one there. He's all alone. Isn't that amazing? Think about it. You see, his first defense was most likely an initial hearing or the preliminary trial, investigating whether there was going to be a formal trial. During that defense, because Paul was a Roman citizen, he was able, he could employ an attorney, he could call witnesses. However, among all the Christians in Rome, there was not one that would come. He couldn't get an attorney. He couldn't get people to step up and say, I stand with Paul. There was no one who came to give him support by demonstration of sympathy. There was no one to advise him. There was no one to speak on his behalf. At this first offense, no one supported Paul. He was utterly alone. Because, you see, people were afraid to be identified with him. The price might be too high. Nero did evil things to Christians. Some Christians, he, he sewn them into the skins of freshly killed animals and then released them into the arena to be devoured and torn to pieces by dogs. Some Christians, he coated with pitch and set them on fire to light his garden parties. This man is absolutely evil. Today we see this kind of evil in Zimbabwe with with the evil tyrant Mugabe. He's torturing, killing people who are opposing him in any way. His government is oppressive, and any who oppose his re-election were beaten, killed, withheld food, Tortured? It's horrid to be under that kind of man. And Nero was far worse than him. In addition, to be associated with Paul would align those with him and they would potentially suffer the same open kind of similar fate as Paul. It's very interesting too this week. On the news, they were talking about the potential of Israel striking Iran. And the, the news commentator said this, that if, the U, if, the, if Israel strikes Iran, the U.S. is going to pay the price because we're associated with them. You see, alignments cause problems for us. And these people, they don't want to be aligned with Paul. 
Christians were afraid of him. The cost of following after Christ and being associated with Paul was just way too much. But let me tell you, even though these severe consequences could befall these Christians, they were not excuses. What they did was wrong. They were to take up their cross and they were to follow Jesus. But they were afraid. And while they may have rejected Paul, possibly they didn't reject Jesus. But they reject being identified this with this man for fear for their own lives. But if there was anyone who needed help and support at that hour, it was Paul. We might cautiously say, this was Paul's Gethsemane. Of course, his agony was different than that of Christ. Yet, like the master before him, who had to face his ordeal alone, for at the time of Christ's greatest need, we're told in Mark 14, 50, all deserted me. They forsook him and they fled. How awful for Paul. And yet, look at his prayer. May it not be counted against them. He is not concerned for those, not concerned for himself regarding those who deserted them. What does he do? He prays for them. Very much like the Lord. What, is, what did the Lord do when he was deserted on the cross and in his day, of, his hour of suffering? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Paul prayed that the Lord would not reckon this action against them. Paul has no sense of malice in his heart for those who turned away and left him to this defense all alone. He prays, Lord, that when they stand before you, don't charge it to them. Don't charge this act of cowardice and fear to them. Now let me just make one quick note. There's no difference. There's a... There's no discrepancy between the account of Alexander, who was evil, and these people, who he doesn't call evil. They were weak, they were fearful Christians whose, whose lives were in jeopardy, really. But he knew the difference between evil and weakness. How did Paul endure this sore isolation in front of this hostile gap? government. This is where we start to see this camouflage become lifted and, and we start seeing what Paul's point is. You see, Paul wants Timothy to learn something from his example. Timothy, you might be young. You might be physically sick and weak. You may be fearful, but I want you to finish your work of faith. Don't stop fighting the good fight. Your crown is waiting. You may be all alone at the end, Listen, you may live your whole Christian life and at the end of your pilgrimage on this world, you may be all alone. But finish well. But how can I? You see, I'm young. I get sick a lot. I, I have nervous stomach because things are so scary it just, the pain, the fear is so overwhelming. I, I just want to go hide. I, I just want to go where it's safe. I want to be free of all this torment. Paul says there is a power available to do what is right. Look at the power, verse 17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Once more, Paul is like the Lord. Paul knew what it was that he was not really alone. He felt alone. But he's not really alone. In anticipation of his coming desertion, Jesus said this. This is what Jesus said about himself in John 16:32. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. 
Yet, I am not alone because my Father's with me. You see, similarly, Paul could say that when everyone deserted him, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. The word stood means it stood by, he stood near him. Men were far away, but the Lord was intimately near to him, close. Christ's presence is that which strengthened him. And the word for strengthen is a word that means to give power within. It's a compound word. It's the very word that Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is that word. Put strength in me. Even Paul tells Timothy to be strengthened in grace in 2 Timothy 2.1. Therefore, my son, be strong. Be strengthened in grace that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul, as he stood alone, deserted by everyone, was fortified by the Lord because the Lord, in fact, stood with him. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you will be able to stand, to withstand the same thing when your hour comes. Learn from me, Timothy. The Lord will not desert you, but will in fact strengthen you in your darkest hour, your most fearful time, when you were at your weakest, Timothy. Trust Him. Lean on Him. He is there. Trust. Let Him empower you to continue. Don't stop. For what was Paul fortified? Look at the proclamation. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. He was fortified to preach the gospel to the Gentiles that were present, just as the Lord had promised the other disciples. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 20, what, what Jesus said to his disciples? Behold, I send you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. You shall even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not become anxious about how or what you will speak, for it shall be given you in that hour what you are to speak. For it is not you who speaks, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. See, it's the same message. Don't be afraid when you're brought into these situations where your life will probably end in martyrdom. It is your opportunity to preach. And the Lord will strengthen you to do that. And such power Paul received Can I tell you that if you're in a situation where you have an opportunity to speak for the Lord, listen, if the Spirit of God wants you to proclaim the gospel and you are seeking to do so, He will empower you to do so. But aren't you like me? Sometimes you're... I'm trying, it's just nothing coming out. I just... Or you know, you, you speak and then you walk away and say, Oh, I should have said... You know, much of those responses is because we see evangelism as our sole effort. When evangelism really is empowered by the Spirit of God working in us, giving a voice to speak. I think sometimes He doesn't let us speak as an act of judgment. When we want to. When we're trying hard. We're looking. But it's an act of judgment. At other times, we're told, you know, you make every oppor- make the best out of every opportunity. You do what you can in that situation. But listen, rely upon the Spirit of God. Ask Him to give you the words, to, to talk through you. And when you walk away, praise Him. Don't second guess. Trust Him to have worked through you. 
we, we walk away kicking, oh, oh. You know what that does? It makes more pressure for the next time. Look, tell people about the Jesus you love. Tell them that how they can enter into relationship with him. Repent of your sins. Draw near to Christ through faith. He will forgive you. And surrender your life to his lordship. But if you walk away and you're always saying, oh, I should have said more, I didn't say anything. Or, you know, the next time you get there, it's like this pressure. i got to perform. No, you don't have to perform. You have to trust and speak and trust and speak and trust. I remember, well, let me just say this. Uh, that was Paul's attitude when he went into this situation. He had the opportunity to testify of Jesus and his saving work by the Lord's enabling power. The word for proclamation is the word kerygma. It means, it emphasizes the substance of something proclaimed, not the act of proclaiming. He was able to give them the right message. It was the message of the gospel. It also says that what he did so fully, he was able to do completely. It was a proclamation that was given to them in full measure. They had everything they needed to be saved. It was possible that there was a great gathering of people to hear Paul's defense. And so Paul spoke boldly the full message of the gospel. He had the Lord supporting him else, uh, supporting his life when no one else was there. And he just fully proclaimed the gospel. I'll never forget a few years ago, if you remember the, the Nally case, where Grace Community Church was being sued by the Nally family for uh, not taking proper actions with their son, Ken Nally, who committed suicide. And so they were called to court over that. I remember going one day, uh, just by the providence of God, went the day that John MacArthur was called to the witness stand. It was wonderful. The, the courtroom was packed, standing room only. And his attorney just said, John, what do you preach? <laughs> and he went on and laid out the whole gospel in the most clear and compelling way. The, the prosecutor said nothing that I remember. It, it was amazing. That's what Paul was able to do. That's what we will be able to do. The Lord will enable us. Look at the provision when that happened. He says, and I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. Now, we know that Paul was not speaking literally of a lion, a real lion, because he was a Roman citizen and Roman citizens were never thrown to the lions. So he has to be speaking of some sort of imagery here. Some people say that it must be a reference to Nero. Nero was a lion-like character and even a previous ruler, Tiberius, was, was when he died, they said the lion is dead. Um, but it's probably not Nero uh, because Paul really was not delivered out from him. <laughs> he stayed in jail and he was eventually killed. Uh, others have thought that the lion is Satan uh, who is compared with a roaring lion, as you know, in First Peter. Uh, is that correct? It might be, but probably not. I think really the way, the way that we should look at this is that it's, it's a figure of speech that refers to mortal danger. After this defense, he was, re, was freed from mortal danger at that moment. As a matter of fact, this, this idea of mortal danger is seen in Psalm 35, 17, when it says, Lord, how long wilt thou look on? Rescue my soul from the ravages, only, my only life from the lions. So they're talking about mortal danger. In Psalm 22, 21, he says, save me from the lion's mouth. That is a messianic psalm referring to Jesus, who is under the place of mortal danger. Paul, for the moment, after his defense, was delivered out of mortal danger, even though his time will come. Now, why does Paul paint this difficult, sad, and 
lonely situation and then contrast it with the Lord's provision. Paul, even at the very end, and this is such a beautiful thing, Paul at the very end is illustrating for Timothy one final message. Timothy, you may be alone. You may be afraid. You may be under evil attack. You may be brought before a pagan court. Your end may be similar to mine, called to martyrdom. But Timothy, you're okay. You may be deserted by your friends, opposed by your enemies. You may be unsupported at your trial. You may suffer coldness and loneliness. You may be longing for help and for the Lord's word. But don't forget, the Lord will strengthen you, for you are truly not alone. Paul has not said all of this, though as honestly as he has communicated, he's let us see into his heart. He has not said all of this for self-pity. But in order to teach Timothy this final lesson, preach the word no matter what, finish your course well, so that when you are catapulted into eternity, your reward will be full. You can stand by His grace. Be confident in Jesus. Don't be afraid. The Lord will give you strength to fulfill your ministry and finish well. Keep your eyes on Him. Trust in His power. Preach His word. And power will be there when you preach. And even though it is difficult and lonely, the Lord delivered me out of the lion's mouth. He will deliver you as well. Praise Him. Trust Him. Can I tell you, that's just a great prescription for ministry. It doesn't matter what it is. The Lord will strengthen us to do what we have to do so we can finish well if we keep our focus clear on Him to preach His Word, to see His church built. The towering above the Immediate dreary circumstances was Paul's unshakable faith in the preserving power of the Lord. Look at the praise for the future. Notice the confession. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed, will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. That's his confidence. Excuse me, his confidence. He will be saved from, that is lifted out of something, and saved for placed safely into something. Paul uses two interesting words the word for deliver. He uses the word deliver. The word deliver here is the same word used in the previous word, deliver out of the lion's mouth. But this word means to rescue from something. He, when he says, will bring me safely, it's a synonym for the word deliver. It's the word sozo here. It means really more to be preserved from or kept. So the first word means to be Delivered out of something. The second word means to be preserved or kept. You could, you could read the verse this way. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and preserve me into his heavenly kingdom. He will be rescued from evil. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed. Now what evil is he referring to? What evil? He's not referring to his death. Because he knows that going to die is gain. The term for evil here is the word paneros. It's a different word than the one used earlier. This word refers to labor, pain, sorrow, and the malignancy of worthless, bad, twisted things or people. It's, it's the idea of the kind of evil you suffer from, th from people. The devil is called this, paneros. He's the evil one. His whole malignant way of life is to ruin, destroy, kill, create pain, to make life hard and difficult. I'll tell you, and I look at what's going on amongst us here. I just keep thinking, you know, the devil just doesn't want us to live. I mean, four things this week have come up in this church just to just try our people. Some physical, some some 
I mean, physical with spiritual ramifications, some spiritual issues, just a variety of things that are going on that is just, personally, folks, it is outright satanic attack. And I believe in that. <laughs> this, this phrase, from every evil deed, is very inclusive in the Greek. And so we could really view this phrase in a couple ways. The initial look is to view this phrase passively. That is referring to evil done against Paul by others. You know, we have him being rescued out of the lion's mouth. He's been speaking uh, regarding, you know, uh, in terms of why it's relating to others. He's talked about being rescued out of, out of someone's mouth or out of the lion's mouth. He's been speaking regarding all the evil that has been done to him. There are people who are outright evil who seek to do evil to him. And, and just let me tell you, there are people who outright seek to do evil to Christians. They just do. Some of these people are in the church. That's why Jesus, when he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are in, inwardly ravenous wolves, you will know them by their fruit. That's why Paul in, Act, in, in Acts 20, 28 says this, be on guard for yourselves and for the flock, all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with blood. For I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, talking to the leaders particularly not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speak perverse things, draw away the disciples after them. Let me just tell you, they're here. It might be you. It might be me. It depends on our devotion. But you see, we have to be very much aware that evil is amongst us. We don't like to say that, but it is. There's also a general evil that people do to each other, not, direct, not directed specifically at Christians, but indirectly we suffer because of it. It's a manifestation of the devil's work of evil in our world and in our in its world views. See, there is a constantly a bombarding of evil externally. But Paul, because of this term, is also referring to evil within himself. Very interesting. His flesh. Paul recognizes that he does evil. He's not immune or super spiritual. He indicts his own heart when he uses this phrase. Paul confidently declares that there's no evil power that can hold him. He will be delivered from every form of evil, even his own. And I'll tell you, when I, when I read that, I, it's just such a wonderful phrase. Every saint suffers evil from their own sin and the sins of others, and yet that evil does not have ultimate power over us as true believers. Evil cannot destroy us. It can make life hard, frightening, lonely, painful, but it cannot destroy. Doesn't mean then, oh, well, we're going to conquer evil. Do we become passive? It doesn't mean we become passive with evil in our life, but it should build confidence that we know one day we'll be finally out of this war. For now, we are at war. And we have to fight against it. We must fight the good fight. We must watch and we must pray. We must wear the armor of God. We must be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We must labor and fight together as one. What is the evil that you need to be rescued from in your own life, maybe, or in your own circumstances? The Lord will deliver you from every evil deed. Every evil deed. Every evil deed. 
There's no evil deed that you will not be rescued from. Isn't that wonderful? I hope there's some hope in that for you. Today, we battle against evil. But we will be delivered from it. Confidently. From the deliverer. This word in Romans 11, 26 and 27, the deliverer is our word and it refers to Jesus. He will deliver us. He will remove all ungodliness, we're told. He will take away our sin. We will be freed. He will rescue us from every evil deed. And we will gain a new residence. Paul says that he gain residence in the kingdom of heaven. Notice what it says. And he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Paul realizes that when he dies, he will go to heaven. And take his place in the Lord's heavenly kingdom, a kingdom that will one day be established on earth. Paul will arrive there safely. God will preserve him to that safe haven. You see, God, once he saves you, he will preserve you. He will see you safely through this life. He will get you to that heavenly kingdom. And we will be safely home. Can a believer arrive without safety? No. We will all make it. If you're truly a believer, you'll all make it home safely. Notice the confession. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul desires that the Lord would receive glory to his name forever and ever. So let it be. God will receive glory through us this now and when he delivers us. He will receive glory as he sees us through what we're going through, as he t- brings us safely into his heavenly kingdom. He will receive glory as we live by faith and as we honor him in our lives and trust him for the future. And it's amazing that Paul would even say that, this in light of where he is, what has happened to him, and what is about to happen. But it is his perspective that even though he is suffering loneliness and the effects of evildoers upon his life, he knows that all is eternally secure. And so he breaks forth in this doxology. To him be the glory forever and ever. See, Timothy, no matter how bad it gets, to him be the glory. Because you see, he's going to see it through. He will not fail you in any way. And he ends this letter with a benediction. The Lord be with your spirit. That's a direct statement to Timothy. The word your there is singular. Timothy, may the power of God that is with me by the spirit of God know that spirit is, that, that, that Lord will be with your spirit. No, he will be with you. Preach the word. Don't back away. The Lord is with you. But even more, he then, in the latter phrase, grace be with you. That's plural. You all. He's talking to the church. May the grace of our Lord be with you all. As the whole congregation in Ephesus, may God's grace be sufficient for all of you to see you through sick when you're weak and scared and sick and tortured and mocked and and shamed, facing execution. May the Lord give you grace. Paul wants that. My grace is sufficient for you. Power is perfected in weakness. Be strong in his grace. And with that doxology, or with that benediction, So passed off the scene. It's amazing how a book of the Bible can affect you. Passed off the scene, the world's greatest missionary statesman. We hear no more. But his voice speaks on. 
One man says, as with Jesus, John the Baptist, many prophets and the apostles, his life was taken from him, but his voice was not silenced. He finished well. Can we fight and finish well? May God be eternally praised as we seek him. Let's pray. Father, this is such a wonderful passage. May it be that we would understand the very heart of Paul in the things that he suffered. But the heart that didn't seek self-pity but sought to always prepare the church for the days ahead, knowing that evil is ever-present. Weak people will be gathered around, that people who lack courage will be discouraging at times. But that is not an excuse for us in any way to turn from our mission and to turn from our work, but to finish Strong to fulfill our ministry, in other words. May it be that we would do that. Never lose heart, but to press on until the day you come for us and deliver us, or until the day you take us home and deliver us that way. Either way, you are preserving us to the end. And we praise you for Jesus' sake. Amen.